0: Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Padgett here and on this week's episode I'm interviewing Charlie Prangley to discuss finding a job. But before we get into that, I want to give a shout out to FreshBooks who has sponsored this season of the podcast. FreshBooks is a cloud accounting software designed for creative professionals to help us send invoices, take online payments and manage our profits and expenses. It's really easy to use and I recommend that you give it a go with the free 30-day trial that they kindly offered listeners of this podcast if you want to claim that just head over to freshbooks.com forward slash logo geek and be sure to enter LogoGeek in the how did you hear section I'd also like to give a second shout out to Holabrief, who have also sponsored the podcast. Holabrief is a new online tool that makes it easier to collaborate with your client to create the perfect project brief. Having that will then help you to be more strategic so that you can provide better solutions for your clients. It's currently in beta at the moment and it's free to sign up. So go and try it out on your next project. And to do that, just head over to holabrief.com where you'll find more information. So as mentioned, this week, we're going to be talking about finding a design job. A few weeks back, I attended a meetup in London where I got chatting to a few recent graduates. They were all incredibly talented, but they've been really struggling to find a job. If you're in a situation, hopefully this podcast will help you find that job that you've been looking for. To discuss this topic I've brought Charlie Prangley onto the podcast who is a super talented designer and developer who works at ConvertKit and she's also best known for her podcast Design Life which I highly recommend. In this episode we discuss a number of topics ranging from CV, portfolio and job interview advice we also talk about how she was able to find her dream job working remotely by networking doing public speaking doing youtube videos a podcast and a number of other side projects this is a really interesting conversation so i hope you guys are going to enjoy it so let's get straight into this here is the interview with charlie prangley So I'm aware that you work as a full-time remote designer slash developer for ConvertKit. I wanted to ask you, how was you able to get a full-time position that you can do from home?
1: Well, the story of me getting a job at ConvertKit is actually an interesting one, and I'm afraid not incredibly repeatable, but yeah, there are a few lessons in here. So <laughs> let me just let me just tell the story. Okay. So uh, I spoke at a conference back in, I think it was 2016. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was 2016. It was a Sean conference. It was a conference about like online business, creativity, that sort of thing. I was speaking about YouTube and going all in on a niche, which in my case was design. Um, and also speaking at that conference was Nathan Bowery, who is the CEO of ConvertKit. Um, he invited myself and Femke, my podcast co-host for lunch after the conference and yeah, we were sitting in this little pizza joint talking for hours. And I can't even remember what specifically we were talking about, but it must have been design. Because at some point during the conversation, he goes, so Charlie, have you ever considered working remotely for an email marketing software company? And I was like, what? what what's happening here? And our friend was like, uh, I think he's offering you a job. <laughs> and so, yeah, from there, I kind of... Interviewed with Nathan, spoke to a few other people at the company, and that is how I got my remote job. So like I said, not super repeatable, but I guess it's being in the right place at the right time and like putting yourself out there in the community. Um, but uh, to give some more useful advice, I suppose I can recommend a few like remote work websites. Um, yeah, sure. WeWork yeah. Remotely is a great one. And remote work is becoming so popular in tech in, in particular. So if you're looking for a job working in tech, then you'll often find remote positions on things like Dribbble or like Stack Overflow, like all of those usual tech job sites.
0: Mm -hmm. What I find really interesting from that story is that clearly that opportunity came about because you was pretty much in the right place at the right time (laughs) and um, you kind of uh, was able to demonstrate that you know what you was talking about. Mm. and um, it kind of feels like I want to stem my questions in a slightly different direction because I wasn't aware of that and um, (laughs) I do think the the speaking circuit is definitely a good way of getting opportunities because I've been to a number of events myself but I've never spoken at them before and I've seen other people get jobs in the the same way are you able to like give us a little bit of background how you originally got into speaking at the events like that. And, and if you could kind of offer some advice for people that might want to do the same thing.
1: Yeah. Well, so I'd always wanted to try and get into public speaking. Right. And I was quite an active member of the Sean Wes community who was the person and like company, I suppose, who hosted this conference I was talking about. Um, and Sean liked my story, basically. He saw me taking part in the community, talking about my side projects, my YouTube channel, and you know, all the other things I was doing. And he wanted me to tell that story at his conference, essentially. So I suppose getting a speaking gig, which in turn getting the job, all stems back to me for from side projects. Um, putting yourself out there and working in public, like talking about your work as you do it, Uh, has had a huge impact for me, both in my career and in getting these sort of speaking opportunities. Um, I'm going to be speaking at a conference next year about like a day in the life of a designer, like basically talking through my process as an in-house designer and how that conference found me was from YouTube. I think they might've even typed in day in the life of a designer and come across my vlog series. So yeah, it's all about being consistent with your side projects and putting stuff out there so that people can see you have a story to tell. Like, If you were to reach out to a conference and just be like, hey, I wanna speak, but you've never posted a blog or a video or a podcast episode or anything online, how do they know that your story is a good one to tell, right? If you've put some stuff out there for free, then they can kind of quality check you, I suppose, and, and get interested. From, from that aspect
0: mm, yeah I, I totally agree with that from personal experience even just finding uh, potential uh, guests for this podcast and yeah. unless you can kind of see that someone has something interesting to say you're probably not going to ask them so you know like just basically from your podcast that's the reason why you're on this so yeah <laughs> you know it's it is a domino effect and if you don't put yourself out there you're not going to get these opportunities now I, I wanted to ask you um, I speak to quite a few young designers when I kind of go to these networking events and they've just graduated but they always struggle to find a job mm. despite having a good portfolio like some of them have been looking for months but they haven't been able to find anything. From your experience what would you recommend designers do in that situation?
1: So I've been on both the like both sides of this equation both trying to get hired as a designer and also hiring designers and you know the creatives. And I think the biggest mistake that people make is not tailoring their application to that specific job. I think especially when you've just graduated and you're kind of like, in a way, desperate for work, right? Like you've just put in all this work in design school and now you want to get paid for it. Fair enough. Completely understand. You might be applying for like literally hundreds of roles, but I think it's much better to be selective with what you apply to so that you can take the time to really tailor your application, write a really good cover letter, do research about the company and be sure you know why you want to work there and why you're applying. Because the truth is that for these roles that companies have open, they will have dozens, if not hundreds, maybe even sometimes over a thousand applicants to each role, especially junior roles, I would say. And so just writing, oh, yeah, I have the skills, I meet the requirements is not enough to for them to be interested in moving you forward to the next level. Because guess what? There's going to be hundreds of other people who are technically skilled enough to do the role. So what they're looking for then next is, are you actually interested in working for our company? You know, um, have you done your due diligence and done a little bit of research into what we do as a company? And can you tell us why you personally would like what you personally would bring to the team here, that I think is something that people miss out on when you're applying to a bunch of different roles, because you're playing the numbers game, right? You're just applying to as many as you can, hoping one will bite. But if you took the time to really tailor your application, I think that you could have a lot more success.
0: Mm. I want to ask your thoughts on just applying to one-off random companies have you ever had any experience with that like say if there's a company that you specifically want to work for have you ever just sent them your CV and portfolio just in the hope that you might get a job
1: you know what I haven't but um I I don't think that that's a bad thing to do I think that that's great like you do have to understand with that that you might not hear back or they just might not literally have a role open so you know But it's always worth a shot, I think, to show that you're interested in someone. Um, We've had a few people at ConvertKit who have applied for a few different roles, you know, um, and we can always see that they're just really interested in the company. And I think that goes along a long way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a lot of that in uh, at the place where I work. Obviously, when you got a job opening, um, you know, you're going to get a few hundred applications. But when you don't you might just get one or two that come in and you know if that person has some talent you would probably consider employing them if there is any financial backing for that person so personally based on my experience I I do think it's worth trying that if um you know you are really keen for a job
1: yeah and that's something a, a good thing to do too is how I found my first job that I got like working for a london based company was looking on their website so I wasn't looking on um, you know, a job board or anything like that. I was on the company's website on their jobs page specifically because that was the company that I wanted to work for. Um, and I noticed they had a marketing designer role open one time, one day when I checked because I'd been checking back, you know, every, every few months basically really wanting to work at this place. So yeah, for sure. Go, go to the company directly. Don't just wait for it to appear on a job board.
0: I, I definitely agree with that because I found out in my previous job that once I'd actually started there I found out how much it cost them to use a, a, a an agency to to kind of yes. find somebody and it's really expensive I think it costs them something like five grand um, because they take a percentage of um, your salary which is mm-hmm. an, it's, it's insane um, but yeah definitely take that route I think it's worth doing now what advice can you give to listeners to make sure that they have the, the best CVN portfolio? Possible.
1: So in terms of the CV, I think just thinking back, um, we've been hiring for a front-end developer at, at ConvertKit recently. So I know that's not like exactly who your listener is, but I think the advice yeah. still stands that yeah. make sure your relevant experience is what stands out on your CV. Um, a lot of the times for this role, I was seeing people say in their cover letter that they had all this development experience But in their CV, like, I guess they'd been doing development on the side. So their CV highlighted mostly like, I don't know, office admin roles and things like that that weren't relevant to the position we are hiring for. So tailor your CV for sure to the work that you're going to be doing at this company that you'll hopefully be hired at, because that's what they're going to be looking out for on on your CV. So yeah, just make sure that it's easy for them to find, basically make it easier for them when, when they're looking at it. And for portfolio, I think something I always recommend is to not just have pictures of your work, but to have writing about it as well, because people don't just want to see the finished work. Um, If they're hiring you to work on the team, they want to know how you got there, right? Like, what's your process? What's it like? Have you got a developed process? Um, you know, do you just go with your first idea or do you do a lot of iterations and talk with people about it? What was the success of this project? like based on the brief, what's some client feedback that you got? or did it improve this conversion rate that it was setting out to? Like any background information you can put on your portfolio in sort of a case study not just showing the images um, goes a long way.
0: One thing I did in some of my early uh, interviews is that I actually, rather than just showing the portfolio piece, I, I got out what they what the company originally had. So for example, for uh, a brochure redesign, I took out the original brochure, I explained what the problems was, and then I brought out the new one and showed them how I solved the problem. Because so- sometimes you know, a, a piece on its own isn't necessarily the most amazing thing. But when they can see that the problem was and how you solved that, that is generally more impressive. And um, also, like you said, being on the other end, you know, actually having that presented to you is so impressive when you can kind of see the the background of that. So I, I think that's really good advice.
1: Yeah, I've, I've done exactly that, too, actually, with a brochure. Also, uh, I used to work for that, a company that was a distributor for Mitsubishi Electric products. So that's like fridges and heat pumps, like super technical products. Um, and the brochures before I joined were like just basically like a spreadsheet in printed form, like lots of <laughs> specs and things like that. Um, and I showed them the brochure that I had then designed from that, that was much more beautifully laid out with like an actual human person in mind, not like a robot reading a spreadsheet. Um, and that was really impressive to them to see that difference I was able to create. So, yep, I totally agree.
0: Yeah, I think my experience was quite similar. Like that was for a medical company. There we go. So it included things... As uninspiring as tubes, and what they had previously wasn't that good. Like it, it just included lots of data tables plonked onto a page. But the updates that I did to them included illustrations, and I was able to better present um, that data so that it was easier to consume as well. So it, it wasn't overly visually stunning, but because I was able to show what was there previously and what I did after that it it made a, a big difference um, as part of the presentations because I was able to show what problems were solved and, um, you know, how I go about um, approaching my work. So um, I thought that was a good way to do it. Yeah, for sure. Now, I wanted to also ask you, once you do have a job, as you do, I've personally always struggled to keep my portfolio up to date. And I've heard a lot of other people also struggle with this. Like um, you can be at a job for years and because you're quite comfortable, you you basically leave your portfolio stagnant. So if an opportunity does come up, you don't have anything to show. So based on your story with the opportunity to work with kit that kind of came up unexpectedly, in that situation, you would have needed your portfolio. So I, I wanted to ask you if you have any useful advice for keeping your portfolio up to date.
1: Well, I'm afraid that I am also one of those designers who's (laughs) terrible at this. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I was kind of gutted that I hadn't kept up with it when this ConvertKit opportunity arose because I was like, oh no, I haven't, like I literally hadn't added any work from the company I'd been at for the past year and a half. Um, You know, I just hadn't bothered to update it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: Luckily, I was able to just, because Nathan was interested in hiring me in particular, I wasn't like technically applying through a job board for a role. So I was able to just send him some links to some of the landing pages that I'd made at, you know, the previous company I was at for him to check out. Uh, But that wouldn't really fly if I'd been applying through a job application, right? That would have looked a bit unprofessional. So yeah, I was lucky in that sense. Something I really want to get better at is Like, obviously it would be good to be putting new projects in my portfolio, but I think a very small start could be just posting to Dribbble more often, little screenshots and like snippets of your work, because at least that's keeping active somewhat and sharing what you're working on um, and putting it out there. And a lot of companies will look at a Dribbble Dribbble profile sorry, as your portfolio Mm -hmm. if you want them Mm -hmm. to as well.
0: One thing that I tried with um, my portfolio, but it failed miserably, is I come up with a really simple layout um because one like when i first started every time i did my portfolio i kind of redesigned it so yeah. i came up with this really simple format where it's just like almost like three boxes on a page you can swap out the boxes for text and it's something that i could i come up with like 5 years ago and um i could still use that same format now so even though i haven't updated my portfolio in years technically i could just take that update a few pages and then kind of go with that and i would say that's That's been really useful for me because I've not needed to redesign it each time. It's just a standard format that I can kind of use for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's smart.
1: (laughs) I think I always try and make my portfolio, like I've always built them in ways that it's really easy to add to, but yet somehow that just hasn't convinced me to actually do the work to add them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any any thoughts on how you would actually present the work in your portfolio as well? Because for example, I've seen people particularly working on web design where they've you know basically found a mock-up of um, a laptop Mm. and they put the website on the on the screen and you've not been able to see it so have you found any really good ways of presenting your your web design work
1: yeah web design is hard because um, especially if it's a client project once you hand it off to them basically the client can change whatever they like and if you're linking to the website They could have made changes that weren't your design um, and that can, I don't know, sometimes it can be an okay thing and sometimes it can actually be a really bad thing. (laughs) A
0: lot of the time it's a bad thing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Um, Even with um, working in-house like I do, once you leave a company or even once a project is a few months old, another designer might come and work on it and update a bit and then it's no longer really your design. So, that's why I think a lot of web designers will put a mock-up instead. But personally, I think you need to do more than just show, like, the one screen on a laptop or even just, like, the whole page. Like, um, currently, I'm in the middle of updating my portfolio, but what I intend to do with it is have the full screen, like, thing they can link to and see, but also pull out little different parts of the design that I really like and that, like, fit well with a brief or whatever so that I can highlight all the little details and, you know, Thoughts that I they put into the decision-making process. Mm,
0: that's a really smart way of doing it. And um, I like that it kind of goes back to what you said earlier about how it's showing your thought process and, mm. and how you've been able to solve problems. Yeah. Do you have any advice for the physical interview itself? Like once you've actually been offered the the opportunity to come in, do you have any advice for like preparing for that interview and actually the interview itself?
1: Yeah. So what I like to do in interviews is basically use my projects to answer questions that they ask me about process and like challenges and things like that I want to think through the things that I've worked on recently and that I have to show and come up with like make sure I know like what the main challenges were with each what the main wins were with each so that I can kind of pull that out of the bag when I need to like if they ask, you know It's a very common interview question, like, tell us about like a challenge that you overcame. Um, You can then pull out a a project that you worked on and talk about the challenge in detail and and what it was about and how you overcame it and what the result was in the end. Just making sure that you know your projects inside and out um, and that you're prepared for how you want to talk about them as well. So, yeah, having those like words in mind, kind of just practicing in your own head, I suppose, before you go yeah. in.
0: Yeah, I, I also I'm going to add to that as well. Like, I've had people come in with their uh, CVs and uh, no, with their portfolio, sorry, and they get to a piece of work and they've actually gone, oh, that's not very good. Skip over. Oh, no. Um, one one thing I would oh. kind of say with anything like that, even if you don't think it's good, <laughs> make it sound good because uh, even if like I might think, Oh, that's not that good, if you're able to kind of sell it and explain why it's good, that goes so far. But if you do that, you know, that negative like that's not very good and skip it just looks so bad and so unprofessional. Yeah. Um so I wouldn't do that. I'd either take that piece out or just pretend it is actually really good.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. <laughs> it must be horrifying for you as the interviewer oh, yeah, to hear that and be like, What are you doing? <laughs>
0: I just want to take a short break to tell you a little bit more about FreshBooks who has sponsored this season of the podcast. FreshBooks is a cloud accounting software for creative professionals like you and me that allows you to be more productive and organized. I remember when I started working for myself I was keeping track of my money in an Excel spreadsheet and creating my invoices in InDesign. Yes it kind of did the job but it quickly became quite messy and also it was quite time consuming so When I started using FreshBooks, it saved so much time and my processes felt much more professional too. My invoices still look great, you know, I was able to brand them up and it was really easy to see an overview of everything that was happening in a really nicely designed dashboard if this sounds like a useful tool for you i'd suggest that you take advantage of the free 30-day trial that's available to all listeners of the logo geek podcast and if you want to claim that just head over to freshbooks.com forward slash logo geek and be sure to enter logo geek in the how did you hear about us?" section so let's get back to that interview. Now, I know um, you spoke about it earlier. You have a number of side projects. I do. I was wondering if you could give us kind of an overview of what those are. And also, I just wanted to ask you how you kind of fit this into your days.
1: Sure. Okay. So main side project at the moment is my YouTube channel. I've been doing this for about five years now, actually. I'm uploading a video at least one video every single week. Like I'm on this streak that I haven't missed. And so now I feel like I've really got to keep wow. this thing going. <laughs> um, so I talk about design on YouTube. Um, yeah. About design process, life as a designer, like issues that I might face as a designer creative block and like imposter syndrome and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. It's sort of like a online journal slash tutorial space for me making videos. I also have a podcast about design that I run with a co-host and so that's a bit different from my youtube channel in that we're talking about our experiences together and yeah there's a lot more back and forth um we're, we're trying to come at it from an aspect that we're your peers in design we're not like you know these super successful people preaching down at you but you know we're just chatting about what we're dealing with and you might be dealing with it too um, we have a community for that podcast as well. So it's like a monthly membership thing where there's like chat and live streams and stuff. What are my other side projects? Um, I also have a Patreon that's mostly for my YouTube channel. So that's like a, a separate membership community, I guess, but like just for my YouTube stuff. Um, and then I have an online store. So I sell t-shirts, which I'm probably have gotten rid of by the time this episode comes out. Actually, that that's like a side project that I'm sunsetting. But I also sell prints, like art prints, um, I think that's it. I also take on the odd freelance project here and there, but as you have heard, the side projects kind of take up a lot of the time. Yeah. so there's, there's not much room for the freelancing. Now,
0: I'm sure everyone listening and myself included, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> um, it sounds like you've got a lot going on, especially since you do have a full-time job and you got that going as well. And I understand that you also do those speaking gigs as well.
1: Mm.
0: How are you able to fit all of this in? Like, do you have any useful like time management tips that you could give yeah. or you know some kind kind of advice for how others can maybe fit so many side projects into their life as well?
1: For sure, so I would suggest first off that you don't start with this many if you haven't done side projects before. It's kind of been a thing I've like added to over time you know so I started with just the YouTube and then we added the podcast, then we added the community. so it wasn't like I went from zero to like you know five in in one day. Uh, So that's that's the first tip. Just start small um, and you can build up from there. No, but what I do really is set aside a couple of hours a day to move forward on my side projects. Um, I usually do this in the morning. So I'll get up maybe at like 6.30, 6.45, 7 um, and do a couple of hours on my side projects before I start my full-time job, like day job work. And it's amazing the difference that just a couple of hours can make because It all adds up over time, right? So perhaps I might move slower on my side projects than I would with them if they were my full time thing. But the point is, they're still moving forward just in a couple of hours every single day. Um, And that, yeah, the morning time especially has been really great for me for getting things done because it means that I'm waking up, I'm like acting on those ideas early in the day so that, first of all, I'm giving my like best fresh self to them like, you know, fresh brain and all of that, not tired at the end of the day after finishing work. Um, and also it means that I'm then not thinking about them as much while I am doing going about my work day because I would find if I tried to work on side projects in the evening, I'd be super distracted all day because I was so excited about the side projects that I just really wanted to work on them. So yeah, mornings has been amazing for me. I know it's not advice that people want to hear that you've got to wake up early, but I mean, if it's something that you want to do, it's not just going to happen for you, right? Like you've got to put the time into it. And so, yeah, give yeah. mornings a try.
0: Yeah, I, I've heard that advice from a, a number of people. Um, one of them in particular is Sean Wes. Um, I know that you're a fan of him. So that's probably <laughs> yeah. where you got that from. But I've got friends that also do that. They will literally go to bed early rather than doing what a lot of people do, you know, just bed in front of the TV and watch trash. He'd actually go to bed early and then wake up at, you know, six or seven and, Um, use that what he describes as like interrupted time Mm. especially if you've got families and children there's time that within early morning where you can sit down and you could do stuff so I I do think that's good advice and and also uh, you know from my experience as well you know doing a little bit each day even if it is 15-20 minutes it mounts up Mm -hmm. (laughs) you'd be surprised how much you can do so um yeah I, I take that advice and kind of go running with it Um, I also wanted to ask, I mean, obviously you've been doing this for a number of years now and, um, you've got your YouTube channel and, you know, you're, you're doing a lot consistently. What is it that's kind of keeping you motivated?
1: (laughs) That's a really good question. Cause sometimes I do ask myself this question when I'm like, you know, stressed (laughs) about meeting a video deadline or whatever. But honestly, I think it's the feedback that I get on my videos and like the response that I've had to it. Um you know, the YouTube comments, if you've ever watched a YouTube video, you've probably noticed that comments can be like a cesspool basically at times, um, full of negativity, full of like, oh, terrible stuff. But I've found that my YouTube comments on the whole are amazingly positive. Um, people won't just write things like, good video or you know even small little you know throwaway positive sentences like that they'll write full paragraphs telling me about their week um like I always like to ask a question in a vlog of them like this week I asked tell them to tell me something they're proud of that happened because I was talking in the video about something that I was proud of and so the comments are full of people talking about that like sharing successes that they've had and I just think that's amazing and so that community aspect of things really keeps me going for sure. That's super motivating. Um, and also seeing the results, I would say in a way like, like getting speaking opportunities, like getting hired at convert essentially because like, if you trace it back because I started my YouTube channel, like if I hadn't been making videos, I wouldn't have been invited to speak. Nathan wouldn't have met me. I wouldn't be working here. Um, yeah. Seeing results like that and what you can get when you put in time consistently, and work hard on on your content and providing a lot of value out there in the world for free that's been super rewarding and that definitely keeps me motivated to keep going because so i'm like okay what's going to come next like what do i want to aim for and how can working on my side projects help mm, me get there
0: that's a really cool way to look at it now you you mentioned then about your videos being kind of like the the key mm. source for you to get a lot of those opportunities and i've heard that from other people as well for, for me personally video is something i'm not that comfortable doing i i have kind of done a couple now but for for many years it was kind of very daunting and i kind of yeah. just put it off do you have any any advice for people that want to kind of start video that might be in a similar situation to me
1: totally i mean i was also in a similar situation to you when i first started mm. i have hidden my first ever video now <laughs> because it is that awkward yeah <laughs> um that's the thing that you got to realize is the people that you see on YouTube and like the people that you admire who are making videos, you probably admire them because they're quite charismatic and obviously confident and comfortable on camera. And so when you make a video as someone new to it and you're comparing it to that, then that can really get you down and make you feel like what you're doing isn't good enough. Um, So what you have to remember is that that person has had Years of practice of talking to the camera that you are only just starting now. So it does take time to get comfortable. I think I can pinpoint, like, as I look back through my videos, a time like almost actually, I feel like my whole first year of videos, I look at the person in them and I'm like, who is that? Why is she talking like that? I don't, like, that's not me, you know? So it's just gonna take time and practice. So the sooner you start talking to a camera, you don't even have to post the videos. Just like, get used to the act of doing it. Even things like posting to Instagram stories, talking to the camera, it all helps you in in getting comfortable and getting confident. Um, so yeah, go easy on yourself and realize that it does take time. Um, and that if you want to be good eventually, you kind of got to start right now in, in the practicing mm. stage.
0: I like that because my first video, um, how it came up is I invited David bryant to do a live feed into my Facebook community. And the, the plan was he would just do it on his own. <laughs> but right. he kind of expected that I would be on there and he convinced oh. <laughs> me to go on. And uh, I was dreading it for like a week. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, my first video is going to be live. And, um, you know, what was funny once I actually sat down, set, you know, some lights up and um, kind of hit the record button, it was not that bad at all. There you go. So I, I do think, you know, that that first one that you do is, you know, probably going to be the hardest but once you realize it's not that bad it it's fine and it's been the same with with the audio as well like my first season it's not that bad but when I listen back to it now it's slightly cringeworthy because obviously yeah, when you when you are able to kind of watch yourself or hear yourself back you start to change how you speak and and yeah. act and stuff like that so I think your advice is good and it's generally with people that do video it's similar advice you just need to start and you'll get better. Totally. Now I noticed on your podcast that you kind of said that you stopped freelancing Mm -hmm. and I'd really love to hear a little bit more about that from you because I do feel like there is this general expectation especially people coming straight out of university that they should kind of go down the freelancing route and interestingly you haven't you you know you've kind of made the choice to actually get a job so I wanted to ask you what's the reason firstly why you no longer take on any freelance work and secondly what's the reason why you've opted to have a full-time job rather than take the freelance route
1: Mm, good questions okay so I always assumed that one day I would be freelancing and who knows like I'm a never say never type of person so maybe I will change my mind and want to do this in the future But my reason for wanting to freelance was for freedom. I wanted to be able to control my own time and like work from home and yeah, like just have more of that autonomy over my days. And guess what? Now I have a job where I have all of those three things, but I also have a steady paycheck. I'm not having to deal with clients (laughs) or like the admin side that comes with freelancing. So those things are like... I really cannot stand. I really do not enjoy them. The whole like, yeah, figuring out what to charge, getting the contract prepared and the proposal, getting the payments, like just don't enjoy. I mean, no one really enjoys that stuff. But for me, it takes all of the fun out of the design work side of freelancing. Um, And so I just, yeah, haven't really enjoyed freelancing a whole bunch. I've enjoyed the actual designs that I've created and the design work. But yeah, like I said, that whole admin side really brings it down as an experience for me. So when I started working remote, I kind of realized, wow, like there is other options out there. Like I can have all this freedom that I want to have, and I don't have to be out there trying to get clients and freelancing in order to have it. So that's really my main reason for stopping was that I didn't enjoy it. And I was getting all the benefits that I wanted out of freelancing from my full-time job.
0: I know um, someone else they they worked full-time originally so they had like a nine to five job where they had to go mm-hmm. to the location and then they went freelance and by going freelance they actually got a really good client that wanted to employ them full-time perfect so they are in the exact same position as you so they've got this sweet deal where they're able to work from home so they get all the benefits of actually being freelance where they can travel and stuff like that but then they got this nice steady paycheck and um, it really does sound like the ultimate position to be in because um, I've I've had the same as you I'm I'm not actually a full-time freelance I've kind of got 50 50 right um, so there's a company I work at part-time which is only like 15 minutes walk from where I live nice and then the rest of the time is freelance and when I first started I really struggled with it because it's not what you imagine it to be it's it's very tough um, you have to do everything Um, I do think there is, there's a lot of downsized freelance that isn't spoken about and I'm quite glad that you, um, bought up a few of those things then.
1: Yeah. Also, I think another reason that I like being working full time is because I like being on a team, um, especially a a nice small team. The company I work for, we're 36, 37 people, I think. So it's fairly small. Um, you can kind of get to know everyone and it's just fun to create stuff together rather than like. Yeah, by myself. So that's another reason why I like working full-time, I suppose. And and another thing too, and why I'm full-time as an in-house designer rather than like at an agency or a studio is that I like being able to really dive deep on a project and on a brand and be like designing something. And then maybe six months later, come back and improve it. And oftentimes when you do freelance or even when you're at an agency, you can't really do that, right? Like you hand the work off and it's like, done your part in it and you move on to the next brand that you've got to get to know so yeah I I really like being in-house and unfortunately it's also hard to do in-house freelance so there we go
0: yeah I I, I had the um, uh, similar experience it was quite some time back now but I worked in-house you know for a single company and you do have the the benefit that you can invest a lot more time in something yeah and because you're there all of the time I remember there being a few brochures that I was looking at for maybe like a year and then I'm like I really want to redesign this and I got this most this amazing idea and I was able to pitch it to them and and invest time on it and I I, I think because of that some of that work that I did back then is some of the best work that I've ever done and um you know kind of being freelance and um my agency life is quite fast-paced work comes in work goes out and freelance is very much the same and you, you just have to get the job done sometimes and sometimes it's not your best work. But like you said, working in-house because you get to know the company, the culture, the product, you can really create solutions that are substantially better than you, than you might if it was just a one-off job. So I think that's a good kind of insight to what it's like to actually work for um, a, a single company as you are. Yeah we have a little more time than expected. So I want to squeeze in another discussion area. So the topic of networking. I know when you're job hunting or looking for work or, you know, opportunities in in general, networking is almost always uh, suggested as a solution for this. And it sounds like you have your fair share of experience based on what you said. So from your experience, can you offer any advice for listeners for how to go about networking with other designers or potential clients?
1: Yeah. So networking, that's such a funny word to me. (laughs) So I would always hear about this, you know, in design school and getting into like my career or that networking is like, you've got to be networking. And I'm like, I saw networking as being at an event, going up to a stranger and introducing myself and like seeing if we could work together. That was what I thought networking was. Um, I've since learned that it's not. Networking is basically making friends, making connections. (laughs) Maybe not the type of friends that you hang out with every weekend or you're going to just like go to the movies with or whatever. But yeah, it really is about just being friendly with people and getting to know them. I, as an introvert do a lot of my networking, at least the first initial contact, like digitally through Twitter, usually Twitter is my like social media of choice. You can reach out to people on there and follow them and just start by like replying to a few things that they say, or maybe they ask a question of their followers and you can answer it and just like, yeah, get to know someone and get on their radar. Essentially. I've met so many amazing people that way. And I can barely believe it now when I think about. Like, um, like you just said before that, um, Sean, Sean West, Sean McCabe, I'm a, been a big fan of his for years. And now I would consider him a friend But through like, we've talked online a lot. We've hung out in person several times. Now we have filmed a video together, you know, I've spoken at his conference. He went from this like person, the stranger that I idolized online to a friend and like a really good connection in my network through just like being friendly, being a person, um, I think that that is often forgotten when it comes to networking, is that we're thinking too far ahead to the end goal that we have. Like if I'd gone up to Sean uh, or like, you know, the first contact I made with him was like, hey, I want to have you on my YouTube channel. Uh, probably wouldn't have gone over so well because he wouldn't have known who it was. And yeah, just is not enticing for him, is it? But if you instead just play the long game, I suppose, and realizing that networking and making good connections takes time, and you might not see any benefits from what you're putting in for literally years and so really you have to go into it with the goal of getting to know someone rather than that goal of like getting something from them if that makes sense.
0: Yeah it's really solid advice and I can um, totally agree with it because I would describe myself as an introvert as well so you know going to these like business networking events is so scary and it's a lot of people you know when they're first doing this they kind of assume that you just go up to someone and kind of say I'm a graphic designer here's my (laughs) here's my business card card." but that's really you know that's naff. nobody wants that you know everyone is a human being and any kind of event that I've been to like probably the most recent networking event I went to was one as part of an event and because everyone's got that event in common as an introvert I find it really useful just to go up to someone that's kind of stood on their own and just say like hey how are you finding the event and like you said just make friends with them and be interested in what they're doing and kind of connect with them and and not to kind of assume that you're going to get anything out of that relationship exactly I think that's where people go wrong and ironically by doing that because people have realized like they find out you're a graphic designer you know you connect with them you add them on um you know linkedin or whatever afterwards they you know get they get in touch they ask you how you're doing and you know because they see you as a friend and that's when you get the opportunities if there are any
1: yeah when someone thinks oh oh, i need a designer oh yeah i met that that person at that event the other day they were a designer let me get in touch like you're on their radar just because you were friendly Yeah, yeah
0: exactly that I'm going to ask you one last question to kind of close up the interview. So sure. if you could go back in time 10 years and give yourself just one piece of advice for your career, what would that be?
1: Okay. So 10 years ago, I think <laughs> I was at design school. Um, so like, you know, learning to be a designer. I think the piece of advice I would give myself is to not worry so much about getting the right answer and like the right grade and instead focus on the process and like really understanding the problem and coming up with my own solution to it. I feel like a lot of my design school, like life, I was just really worried about what the tutors thought of me and my work and just trying to get like good grades. Um, And I think that that really hindered me a bit and I didn't really find my way in like really understand the design process and problem solving until I was out working in the real world so you know I'm very lucky that someone decided to hire me despite that because I think I kind of learned that on the job but yeah that would be my advice to myself is to just trust in the process and not try to know the answer before you do the work to just like do the work to find the answer
0: that sounds like really good advice for anyone that's kind of you know in school or university or college or whatever that, that's currently working on mm. um, any projects so yeah that great advice well Charlie I, I want to say you know thank you so much for coming on as a guest uh, I think you've given a lot of really good advice here so yeah thank you thanks, very much. Yeah. it's been awesome to speak to you yeah
1: thanks for having me it's been great
0: an amazing interview. Charlie, thank you so much for all the fantastic advice you gave us. To learn more about Charlie, head over to her website, charliemarie.com. I'd also highly recommend the podcast Design Life, which Charlie co-hosts. And on that show, they talk about how they are able to balance side projects on top of a full time job. And you can find that by heading over to designlife.fm or by searching Design Life on iTunes or your preferred podcast player. Show notes for this episode, including links to uh, resources mentioned, as well as a full transcription of the interview can be found at logogeek.uk forward slash 3.8. If you're keen to chat about this episode or anything else logo design related, I'd love for you to join the Logo Geek community on Facebook. It's free and it's a great place to get feedback on your work and meet other designers from around the world. To join, just head over to logogeek.uk forward slash community where you'll be asked to answer two simple questions, And um, basically, if you don't answer them, then you're unlikely to get in. Um, Answering those questions helps me uh, filter out loads of spam and just make sure that that community can be the best place online to talk about logo design. And if you've enjoyed the podcast so far, consider writing a review on iTunes. Um, I very rarely hear from people that listen to the show. So if you do listen and you enjoy it, I'd I'd love to hear from you. I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about the show. So head over there, write a review and I'll make sure to read those. So thank you so much for listening. It's very much appreciated. And I'll see you next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek podcast.